Welcome back, Terrence. I am really happy to have you back and talk about your new book. And I think since you've been a guest before, some people will know you and there has been enough time that's passed that you've accomplished some educational goals and you've written this second book. And maybe you can catch people up a little bit on um, what you've been up to in terms of your studies and, and your organization. And then we can talk about the difference between this book and the previous one. Yeah, sure. Well, Lisa, it's always a pleasure to be here with you. Um, I consider you a, a sister in the Lord and um, have been very encouraged and inspired by your own writings and, and teachings over the last uh, 15 months, specifically uh, during the middle of, of the pandemic. For those who may be listening and don't know who I am, I am a Terrence Lester. I am the founder and executive director of a nonprofit organization called Love Beyond Walls, and we're based in Atlanta, Georgia. I'll tell you, Lisa, 2020, 2021 has been a whirlwind. Uh, traditionally, our organization was, you know, known for having a community center and like engaging the community and uh, doing all sorts of things. I think I've, I've spoken about these at length uh, in another podcast that I did with you. Uh, but the pandemic itself shifted all of that. You talk about uh, losing uh, volunteer engagement. Uh, we're still in the recovery process of that and figuring out how to re-engage our community um, we've had several community members to pass away uh, from COVID-19 and other related health challenges. You know, donor giving uh, dropped significantly, I think, out of the duress of people trying to self-preserve and, and not really knowing what the future would look like in terms of uh, COVID-19. Uh, but then, uh, you know, our organization had a, a pivotal moment uh, that became catalytic for our advocacy work and as well as uh, ways to empower other people on the front lines caring for those experiencing homelessness. And so we launched a campaign called Love Sinks In, uh, providing hand washing stations and uh, sanitation uh, to our brothers and sisters experiencing homelessness, not just here in the city of Atlanta, but around the country. And that story spread. And so uh, we were able to deploy, you know, over a thousand uh, hand washing stations all around the country uh, and into additional countries, uh, helping frontline workers actually give critical access to this uh, resource of sanitation for those people experiencing homelessness and poverty to be able to wash their hands because uh, one of the primary things that the CDC has communicated throughout the duration of the pandemic was that we needed to keep our hands clean. And so uh, our team really understood the lack of resourcing as it related uh, to people experiencing homelessness uh, with this critical resource because uh, when you're living without an address, you don't have access to those uh, necessities that everyone else has access to. 
during this as well, I started a PhD program, which I just completed the first uh, year and a half of that and uh, have been doing research about the origins of homelessness, as well as trying to understand where this very criminal view of what it means to be poor in this country, how that derives from um, political rhetoric, as well as uh, negative social commentary uh, as it relates to being poor or being without an address in this country. And so there was a, a, a real shift that I've learned that happened uh, from the experience of homelessness being something that uh, people, you know, used to live in encampments, post-war era, specifically so they used to live in encampments because people wanted to be closer to their work, uh, specifically around when the railroad system was being established and people were helping to lay tracks and finding employment through those things. And it didn't become something that was personal until the late uh, 1970s where people were blamed uh, for not having enough. Um, and so like understanding like the different, the differing uh, views of what it means to be without an address through this research has given me uh, more ability to communicate as a leader, but also from an organizational standpoint of why empathy is needed in addressing or approaching or engaging uh, people who may be poor or without an address. So that's kind of what I've been up to. Yeah. As you talk about the, the origins of this mentality it's, it's really striking to me because um, I've seen you wear the t-shirt and I've thought of this myself, being poor is not a crime. Uh, it's interesting though that there is a kind of unconscious bias in so many people. And even myself a while ago before I knew better, I would think you know, somehow there, there was their, their fault or something. And that mentality eliminates empathy instead of seeing uh, people and their situation we just wind up comparing them to people who have resources and then judging them. And it's, it's really pervasive and, and unconscious. And I'm glad that you, you bring that up about, we have this idea of sin or crime and punishment uh, that completely derails our ability to help those in need. I think that is spot on. Uh, there is this mentality that has derived from all sorts of places, uh, even, uh, you know, communities of faith, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there were times even in scripture when, you know, someone would be experiencing uh, some type of trauma or illness and the disciples of Jesus would say, who sinned? <laughs> this man or his parents, right? It was this mm-hmm. mentality that uh, because you were in many ways disabled or dislocated, mm-hmm. that somehow it feel on um, yourself or even, uh, you know, what what your parents had done. And Jesus says, neither, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's, it's this real, you know, very distant mentality that we've kind of adopted through, uh, you know, just a, a faulty theological framework. And then even, you know, our society and culture, you know, I talk a lot about worth and value and how mm-hmm. sometimes 
you know, we assign worth and value based upon these very extrinsic things like mm-hmm. you know, who you associate with, what church do you go to, you know, what kind of coffee do you drink? Where do you get your coffee? You know, mm-hmm. what is your geography? Where do you stay? You know, what mm-hmm. kind of degree do you have? And all of the, we list all of these things as a faulty metric system of how we define worth and value, right? Mm-hmm. But yeah. when a person does not have access to those things or uh, those things in, in general, does that mean that they are less worthy? Mm-hmm. You know, I think we've been conditioned uh, to only associate worth uh, based upon, you know, people who on the surface seem to be doing well, right? Mm. Um, but real worth is found in the inherent worth and value of every single person, the Mago mm-hmm. day, because you are born, because you're living, because you're breathing, you are worthy of having your dignity affirmed. Absolutely. And I think that's, that's a powerful uh, reframing of that. That's really well said. Thank you. I, I think our culture also has this Protestant ethic of productivity and that your productivity is a determiner of your worth and value. So that people who might be mentally ill or disabled in some way who can't work uh, maybe at all or maybe only a little, that is the measurement. The productivity measurement is how people will unconsciously or consciously judge others. And we might be speaking of people who are really good at other things that can't be measured. They might be really good at companioning or um, finding help for other people or really kind. Those aren't the measurements that we're reusing. And instead, this lack of access issue becomes the dominant way we'll, we'll view people who, who don't have an address or who are uh, in some kind of financial or difficult situation that is really a product of many things going wrong and us as a really wealthy country failing to help them out. The other thing too is like, I mean, even just this morning, I was, I gone to uh, our center really early and I was just sitting in reflection. Um, But before then I passed this church, uh, probably less than half a mile away from our center there was this uh, man experiencing homelessness, just kind of standing in the parking lot of this this church, and um, he had a couple bags. And these two persons, uh, there were two males that walked over to this individual, and they were just pointing their fingers in his face and just like mm-hmm. yelling. I, I mean, I I pulled over and I asked, I yelled out the window, "Is everything okay?" Mm-hmm. But that type of uh, mistreatment Mm -hmm. is very hurtful and Mm -hmm. it is i've even experienced on some of my campaigns um i remember walking across the country uh for map 16 if you don't know what map 16 is it's uh, march against poverty i walked from atlanta georgia all the way to uh washington washington dc to raise awareness about homelessness and there were times when i was in small rural uh, communities where, you know, I would be turned away from church doors because mm. uh, I asked to use the restroom, you know? Mm. And I, I think people don't necessarily have a problem with uh, historical Jesus. They have a problem with those who follow him, but hate, exclude, and mistreat 
uh, the people whom Jesus spent most of his time with. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, we need to reframe that going forward uh, because, you know, real tangible love is uh, very powerful and transformational as we avail ourselves to be proximate to those who are overlooked in society. Mm -hmm. I mean, we could literally start, uh, you know, uh, a positive uh, revolution of transformation Mm -hmm. if we really care for those whom uh, the Bible says that we're supposed to care about. I wanted to circle back around to the love sinks in. And I also saw that that you had created showers out of these, the large plastic containers when they're empty, we're able to somehow, I'm sure with other people cooperation, turn it into a shower. And one of the things I, whether you're mentioning it or not, your idea about remembering that dignity is inherent. It's not something that we earn. It's something that's owed to every person and is part of every person, whether people are recognizing it or not. And I think that that is also works into what you have in your book, talking about if we want to practically help people, we have to do our own inner work first. We can't just change behaviors. And there's some heart work involved if we have attitudes of superiority or or something like that over others, or if we just are trying to do some good deeds or something, but we really don't take into account that Amago Dei and the other person and the empathy needed, putting ourselves in that place, but for by the grace of God, so would we go. We might have an injury or mental health issue or a financial ruinous situation, and we could be exactly in the same place. In your book, which is just super practical. I found that anybody who truly wants to get involved, that this book allows for extremely practical get started information. And it also has a forward by Dr. Greg Boyle. And I thought that was so cool. And maybe you could um, mention uh, his influence on you and, and how you have connected. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we, we did start showers. Um, and that story derives from a conversation that I was having with a community member. His name is Virgil. Uh, Virgil Mm -hmm. has been staying in the woods for a little over two years. And, um, one day we were talking about, you know, access to, uh, sanitation. And I asked him, I I said, Hey Virgil, how, how do you, where do you go to um, to grab a shower? Mm-hmm. And on his bike, he had this this bucket. He says, you see that bucket right there? Mm-hmm. Um, I collect rainwater in it um, because I have to pray for it to rain. And when it does, I sit it mm-hmm. out in the sun and I use the, uh, the lukewarm water to um, clean myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I started to think about how could we repurpose, you know, these 250-gallon water tanks to provide Mm -hmm. access to showers to people like Virgil. And that's when I had the idea to kind of convert these, these tanks into a self-contained shower uh, Mm. to use a tankless water heater, et cetera. And, you know, community members like uh, Virgil and Frank and Run and um, Robert and Petey and many of the others that we've been able to engage have been able to take, uh, these showers is really disheartening sometimes when, you know, you'll have a community member as you mean, I won't be punished if I 
keep coming back and asking for a shower or you mean I won't be um, told to get off the property. Um, We had one guy say that he hadn't uh, showered in a a few weeks. And the last time that he was trying to get water from a spigot, uh, Mm -hmm. he was cursed out and told that he was worthless and and things Mm -hmm. like that. All surrounding uh, access to a critical resource that everyone should have access to, which is running water, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm, we are always inspired by the the conversations that we have with people that we are proximate to, which is another powerful way to kn- to know how to show up and serve, or to 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 walk alongside people. You know, many church groups and individuals oftentimes bring their own ideas to a community. And my whole message has been always to sit with and listen to those who are suffering, uh, not as entertainment, but as a way of seeing what the community is crying out about that they need. Um, I think it gives us a really great opportunity to see how God is speaking through the suffering that a community may be plagued with. And as we hear, we are also given an opportunity to respond, right? I think there's a real, uh, you know, common thing that happens that when we see people who are in suffering, who are suffering, not only do we just pull out our cell phones and capture the footage for social media now, but we turn our head or we walk away Mm -hmm. or we, um, distance ourselves even even further from having the opportunity to respond uh, through service and offering up um, ways in which we can walk alongside our neighbor. And uh, there's a quote that is on the back of the box truck that we have that says, uh, just because a person is experiencing homelessness does not mean that they're not your neighbor. And so we talk a lot about the the whole community as opposed to parts of the community. Um, It's really funny, though, how I met uh, Father Gregory Bull. I was uh, right before I started Love Beyond Walls, I had traveled to California. Mm -hmm. I heard about this organization called Homeboy Industries, and Mm -hmm. I had gone out there just to see it functioning. It's a gang intervention program that gives, you know, formerly incarcerated individuals access to work and dignity and community and all those things. Mm -hmm. And so I I had gone out there and I'll never forget, I was standing uh, across the street from the building and I was like, that's it, you Mm -hmm. know? And I was just like deeply inspired. I interacted with, you know, a few community members and I'll never forget, uh, on the flight home, I stayed there in the area for a few days. I was like, I'm deeply inspired. I got to start something. Um, Mm -hmm. And it became a spark for me to start Love Beyond Walls, you know, along with conversations and reading books and discernment and all those things. Yeah. But uh, I started and uh, the work started to pick up and, you know, people started to hear about the work that we were doing. And six years later, you know, almost to the date of when I visited California to see Homeboy Industries, uh, I was invited to speak at a conference, uh, like a national conference. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I gave a keynote talk and they asked me to sit on a, a panel. 
And they say, well, we're going to have a town hall and you'll sit on the panel, but it will be mm-hmm. only two people. And I said, okay, well, who is the other person? <laughs> and they said, oh, it's Father Gregory Bull. <laughs> and it was just like, are you kidding me? <laughs> you know? Uh, and so I sat on this panel with him and we were both talking about ways in which we view affirming the, the dignity of those who have been excluded and living on the margin. And um, he talked about how love is simply a, a way of just receiving people that we're called to receive. And we both talked about how we got into this work, not because it was a choice, but because it kind of chose us. Right. Mm, right. And I, I'll never forget quoting uh, Henry Nowen. I was trying to be super deep because I was on the panel with Father Gregory Wall. And I started quoting Henry Nowen, um, Nowen's quote about compassion and, you know, how we're supposed to weep with those who weep and more. And then he, he says, he looks at me and he looks at the crowd. He says, oh, yeah, I remember uh, Nowen talking about that because I took his class in seminary <laughs> and everybody started laughing. And we just had a connection uh, there and we kept in touch since then. Oh, that's cool. He writes on page two and in the foreword, he says, in such times, we rely on a voice like Terrence Lester's. It beckons us to joy in spite of everything. It knows what can scale the walls that divide and keep us from each other. It widens the circle. And we are astounded at how thrilling it is when we know finally that our separation has always been an illusion. We are meant, after all, to embrace kinship and connection. We are grateful to have been reminded in precisely this way, Terrence Lester is the shape of God's heart. That's beautifully said and accurate. I really appreciated that he was lending his voice to your book. And as I speak about that, I'd like to just read the table of contents so people get a, a sense of what's in the book. And then maybe we can just pick out a few things to take a deeper dive into, if that sounds okay to you. Yeah, sounds great. So there's the foreword by Father Gregory Boyle, then the introduction called Be Better Together, then Get Out of Your Bubble, Make More Time, Pursue Something Real, Be Brave and Unlearn, Think We, Not Me, Know Your Worth and Make a Difference, Take the First Step, Live Intentionally, Bring Someone With You, maximize your impact, and the conclusion is play your part. What's a theme in all of those things really is working together, collaborating, cooperating, and not letting, as you mentioned on page, I believe, on page seven, you mentioned often injustice actually prompts feelings of apathy or sudden desire to stick our heads in the sand and to hide from it all. And sometimes we can get overwhelmed with the the nature of the problems and the amount of the problems. But your book really comes at this in a let's join hands, let's work together, and that will make it easier. So I guess I will ask you a question about um, the impetus for this book, because your book, I See You, um, is more of your story. And this seems like a really practical side of it. Do you want to explain why you decided to put these particular things in this book? It is a little bit different from I See You in that, you know, I See You was born out of this this passion to not only share, you know, what shaped me historically, but also like what I've seen uh, people do 
uh, to mm-hmm. people experiencing homelessness and how uh, the issue of poverty has become an issue that we kind of leave off the table mm-hmm. and how there's this great need of us uh, seeing persons who are deemed invisible as being a part of the beloved community um, and like walking people through their own fear and their anxiety and, and just kind of like deconstructing some of the false narratives that uh, people have been given uh, about what it means to be poor uh, in this community. And so like, I really wanted to prime people uh, in a way of, you know, what is empathy? How do you really see someone? Uh, Why is there a need to be seen? You know, how are you seen? All of those things. Um, But when we stand was just kind of like, was born out of this desire of wanting to see people come together. Like no matter the campaigns that we've done, the innovative ideas that we've had, that we've implemented or how we've inspired people all across the country and world, there has been this common golden thread of people coming together. And as a nonprofit leader and as a a person of faith and a, I'm, I'm also an ordained pastor. Um, I've seen what the division does, not only to the body of Christ, but just period in our in our context. And I think, um, you know, if we are to address any of the issues, it's going to, to take a, a, a collective um, body of people saying, no, we need to lock arms and really address the issues that are playing the communities um, that may be disadvantaged across the country. I've seen beautiful, wonderful things happen in the lives of individuals uh, living on the streets and also like being displaced when people have come together and decided to address an issue that has either plagued um, an individual's life or some uh, injustice that is hovering over a community. Um, there was a time when I was given the opportunity to be on staff at a historic black church, uh, here in the city of Atlanta. And my role was, you know, I was the pastor of social justice and witness and also like community organizing. Right. And so I had to really discover how to bring stakeholders together, uh, from all walks of life, but also being a pastor and a shepherd to all of these individuals, whether they had differing uh, points of view or not, whether they were on the same page or not. Mm -hmm. Um, And out of that experience, it really shaped my heart for wanting to see uh, people from all walks of life come together um, to to address issues. And then the other thing is this, Lisa, we have a growing epidemic of social media trauma uh, happening uh, by the day, by the second, literally. Every time you refresh your feed on social media, it's something else that has happened in the world. And I think uh, taking all of that in within itself can make a person feel overwhelmed to the point where they feel paralyzed and they feel like their contribution, no matter how big or how small, wouldn't matter or make a mm. difference. And what I'm trying to argue uh, or, or bring up in, all throughout the book is that 
you can actually make a difference right in front of you if you choose to connect with other people who are like-minded, have similar passions, and are offer, offer, also offering up um, what they have to offer. Because I believe, you know, God gets his uh, greatest glory when people come together and offer up their gifts, their talents, um, you know, all connected together to make a difference um, against injustice or any of the things that may be plaguing the community uh, right before them. You know, God is not glorified through division. God is not glorified through people being apart. God is not glorified when we stand at a distance from one another and we don't choose to come together in community and address some of the issues. And so just being passionate about wanting to see people come together and uh, emerge from isolation, but also see themselves as a part of uh, this wonderful tapestry of social change and, and the beloved community. Mm. Yeah, and I really feel what you're saying when you talk about um, social media trauma. And this year, and you, I'm sure you know this uh, to some degree at least, that in 2021, there have been 10 mass shootings per week and we're at 223 or, or more and the year is just half over. And I believe that's the tip of the iceberg, that we're seeing the most violent things happen uh, in front of us on, on TV. But the actual suffering is so hard to actually track and measure because there's uh, so much hurt and grief and onslaught of, of many things that are disconnecting us from each other and from God. I, I think of we're in a time of great soul sickness and as I think about um, people getting involved in the community and, and hopefully as we pull out of this pandemic more seriously, I hope that people begin to notice each other again and begin to realize that connection online isn't necessarily life-giving or generative. It's a lot of times death-dealing. Maybe you could just speak on, on some of that. Yeah, for sure. Um... Uh, one of the things that I talk about in the book, uh, in the chapter about getting out of your, your bubble, um, mm -hmm. I talk about, you know, isolation and how isolation can sometimes feel safe. You know, in many cases, people use isolation to, you know, protect themselves from trauma, uh, to, uh, kind of pull up these walls where they don't put themselves in position to get hurt again. Other people use isolation to kind of hide things, maybe to mask depression or uh, any of the, the things that they may be wrestling with alone because they've never had a safe space uh, to talk about these things. And then other times people are using isolation from a, a, a ministerial perspective People isolate themselves based upon territory or mm -hmm. denominational affiliations or, mm -hmm. you know, being in competition with others or, you know, those people don't have what I have. So I need to carry myself, you know, higher than them. Right. Maybe it's a, a better community in terms of housing. Maybe it's a private school. Maybe it's this. Maybe it's that. And we kind of isolate ourselves. But what isolation does is it. It's actually sets you up 
to be in a in a place where you are uh, struggling in your soul, you're struggling uh, to not have that community that could be there for you um, to offer hope, to also give you perspective, but also to um, you know hold you up throughout like crisis moments. Mm-hmm. You know, isolation within itself damages the much larger fabric of community uh, because isolation keeps people from one another. And I think to your point, that's what we have been seeing. And I am also hopeful that we will emerge from our bubbles and learn how to engage uh, people again, uh, not judging one another or pointing the finger at one another, but, you know, being proximate to one another and then offering ourselves the space to be vulnerable uh, with other people because I think there is a real healing that happens when we emerge from isolation and uh, enter into community with other people. Mm-hmm. There was a, a article in 2018 in Psychology Today that says like there's a, a loneliness and an isolation epidemic, right? Mm-hmm. And it talks about how loneliness um, literally poses ser- serious physical risk. Right. And it can mm. it can be just as deadly as smoking up to 15 cigarettes a day. Right. Wow. They're equating this real tangible thing that many people have been experiencing in, in terms of isolation and loneliness to smoking cigarettes. Right. Mm. Which suggests that there is a real severity that we need to consider in terms of like being in community and being proximate with other people, uh, seeing people, but also making ourselves available to be seen. Mm. Yeah. With the pandemic, it's like probably 15 unfiltered cigarettes. I, <laughs> I would imagine that we've really, we have yes, yet to see the damage that all that isolation brings us in, in mental unhealth because we really need each other. Um, even just, neurologically we need those mirror neurons seeing other people's faces and communicating directly to even understand how we feel it's like a real existential physical issue about isolation and loneliness and it doesn't mean that when we decide to help somebody suddenly all of our internal problems or issues go away i want to mention in on page 71 you said to speak truthfully, if I'm not doing the real work internally, then I will not be any good for anyone. And I wanted to kind of zone in on this a little bit because your internal work has to be something that you keep up with. It's not like you're going to be a hundred percent cheery and, and optimistic all the time. You're going to have moments of discouragement and yeah. How do you keep yourself from closing off, hardening your heart or becoming cynical or or discouraged? And not that you never have those moments, but what is the internal work that you do for that? Yes, great. Um, Great question. I mean, in full transparency, like there are moments when I've experienced mistreatment or, um, you know, uh, being... uh, attacked uh on social media for some of the campaigns or you know speaking up for people who have been marginalized um and it it hurts it just does lisa um 
even this week I've experienced, uh, you know, some of those, uh, that mistreatment and, and things. And, uh, one of the things that I always do is I, I get really quiet, um, not out of, um, wanting to just shut down, but to really create a space within to, to listen, uh, to see what I'm feeling on the inside, uh, to listen to the emotions, to explore, uh, where the mistreatment has caused the pain. Uh, and then I, after I do that, you know, I may take a walk or I may be intentional about calling someone to help me, uh, gain perspective. Uh, traditionally I've been, uh, known to talk about therapy and its mm -hmm. importance. Uh, my therapist uses the acronym fuel, right? Uh, you know, you have a feeling, right? Um, and then therapy gives you a, an opportunity to gain some understanding, right? So you can express, uh, your emotion, mm -hmm. um, uh, to, to ultimately, let it go or become aware of, uh, those trigger points so you can manage it. And I think, mm -hmm. um, that's very healthy, uh, for you to, you know, feel those things, uh, to, you know, seek a place of understanding or at least an alternative perspective mm -hmm. and uh, mine out the jewels and the nuggets and the wisdom that you can learn from, uh, the crisis moment, whatever it may be. Uh, not shying away from your emotions, but giving you a, a place to express those things. And ultimately, after you're expressed, they don't hold you captive or they aren't necessarily oppressing you because you are working to manage those things. I've also uh, incorporated working out in, in my regimen, mm -hmm. which is a, a form of a healthy way to cope. Um, I read uh, a lot. Uh, I write a lot. I'm just talking about all these practices. Mm -hmm. Also, I like to laugh with my family. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> my wife and my kids, uh, we all think that we are comedians. <laughs> I've seen the pictures to prove it. <laughs> For real. We, uh, we joke a lot in the evenings and sometimes that helps to uh, lighten the load, but I think all of that gives me a space to release, mm -hmm. but the, the inspiration derives from my family and then like remembering my own personal story of how God redeemed parts of my story. And also mm -hmm. like just being aware of this need to continue to show up. Sometimes I call my friends who I've met in community uh, that have become a part of our organization's community. And I just talk to them and I'm mm -hmm. inspired by them. And these may be people in the, in society and culture's mind that aren't deemed really successful, but they are important and they're important mm -hmm. in my heart, in my mind, and they're important in the eyes of God. And I'm not necessarily really inspired, but like the, the Christian celebrity culture, that's mm -hmm. not me. I'm inspired by everyday people who mm -hmm. choose to get up and give life one more chance mm -hmm. um, after life has given them all sorts of lemons. Yeah. And so I join in community with those people and I hope and dream with them that we can make lemonade together. Yeah, lemonade. We're making lots of lemonade. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 
I, I love also how you mentioned just finding joy and, and being silly is a is a stress release because sometimes we can take our pain so seriously that we can't uh, have some levity by just sinking into humor and connections with other people. I love the the outfits you guys do and and all the posing <laughs> yeah. and the pictures. I mean, it brings me joy to see that. I think it it really rubs off. You're not dealing it in a constant confetti and rainbow situation. And so it is going to get you down sometimes. And, and um, it's important for people to know that you have your ways of staying connected and staying grounded and centering down so that you can do your best work and be your the best man you can be to your family, but to yourself and, and to your community. And so I think that's really, I like underscoring that to, Terrence is not superhuman. He's like a regular guy, even though he right. has 47,000 followers. <laughs> he, is a, he is a regular guy who can have moments of difficulty that there are certain ways you confront that. And yeah. people need to know that's how it works. That's how you keep yourself okay. Yeah. And I think there's this risk, really, uh, this misnomer or this misunderstanding in certain Christian uh, circles that everything has to be cupcakes, rainbows, and <laughs> that's not reality, you know? Uh, yeah. And so there will be moments on the journey where you'll, you'll feel it like you'll wake up and you'll think that you can take over the world, right? So to speak, mm-hmm. or give your all. And then there are moments when you won't feel it, but you'll still have to function and operate out of the discipline that you've mm-hmm. uh, established and you're out of your groundedness and out of knowing where the source of your strength comes from. And that is what keeps me showing up every single day, um, not in my own strength, but remembering that it was God Um who who pursued me and who also gave me a sense of worth and purpose and meaning and all of those things. Mm-hmm. And that even when I don't necessarily feel God's presence, I have this knowing that God is, is with me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's beautiful. I just want to mention to listeners, Terrence Lester's book is called When We Stand, the power of seeking justice together. I was honored to be on the early release of these these uh, advanced reader copies, and I, I really gained so much. Your life is a testimony and a witness to God's love and power. Uh, I am a super fan of Terrence Lester and all you're doing. What are some final things you'd like to leave with my listeners, or if you want to direct them in any way to help you out or to do anything in particular? particular leave them with a little nugget yeah i would i would say that um if you notice uh someone in community speak up encourage them see them um you never know what people are carrying in silent if you want to look up our work you can at loveyandwalls.org um if you're looking for good content, we we also just uh, released a uh, docu series called Find Your Why. It starts like with the origin story of like, you know, how I started. Um, then it moves to like 
the importance of seeking community as well as in having grit, but also it tells the story of life change from uh, one of our community members who went from corporate America to experience the homelessness back to corporate America and the entire story of like how we walked with him uh, through that process. And so that can be found on our website under the get educated tab for absolutely free. And, you know, Lisa, I'm a fan of yours as well. Uh, you're my sister and I'm just grateful to know you and uh, be a, a in this generation, start serving a lot alongside people uh, like yourself. 